This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, well, at least the final confrontation is fair. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the Star Trek sci-fi review critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izex. Hi. And this week, I, I don't know, it's a religious war, Ocean's Eleven sort of thing on an alien planet, and that sounds really interesting, but it's not. <laughs> well, that's just because, like, two-thirds of the episode is filler. Come on. <laughs> it's so filler. I mean, I swear that this thing was, this, this thing was just, just, I don't know. I think it was made to to just set up. They this they only had to draw one background. I don't know what to say. I'm tr- struggling to describe it. They had to draw one background that they were on for ninety percent of the episode. I'd also make maybe make an argument that it's like, all right, we need uh, an episode that really gets the kid kids excited about like action and Star Trek, and so we'll uh, have lava flows. There we go. People <laughs> run. From kids love that lava. <laughs> My kid was was out the other day. Was just like, "Oh my god, there's lava!" I'm like, "Nope, that's mud," and he was very disappointed. He's <laughs> like, "Oh, now what? What excitement are we gonna get for the world today?" I don't know. I guess we'll have to go and solve the main problem of the episode. I guess. <laughs> yep. Hey, this episode is called the Jihad. Mm-hmm. Um, just the Jihad. That's it. Not the Jihad of something. Not. Uh, the jihad for something or other jihad uh, we're gonna like introspect for a while sort of thing uh, just the jihad i don't know how common this was as a word before the 2000s like i encountered it first when i was reading dune then after the 2000s we started hearing it all the time in very negative contexts but indeed having grown up as a 90s kid i don't know what it was like in the 70s and yeah, neither do i because i wasn't alive then uh, surprise uh <laughs> but uh the uh th- th- it is a term that has been around uh you know quite some time uh you know since you know the you know 700 600 something like that uh you know the early uh, you know uh you know times uh, around the, the formation of islam and even earlier from what i understand uh the origins of it uh, go back but that's kind of when it was like popularized in a certain context um, but, uh, we could talk about that a bit later, but, uh, as far as like Western usage occasionally popped up, maybe kind of, but mainly for folks that were like interested in cultures beyond their own, which was actually kind of rare, you know, in the seventies, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this episode, uh, we've had this writer before written by Stephen Candle, who wrote all the mud episodes. Yes, um, this one's a bit different than the mud episodes. But for one thing, uh, it doesn't have mud in it. Yes, <laughs> uh, they also uh, wrote for a bunch of other things which we mentioned, like the magician, Mannix, uh, the six billion dollar man, shock trauma. Uh, you know, other things we've already mentioned, like MacGyver. <laughs> MacGyver is pretty good. So yeah. <laughs> Oh, do we technically have a couple of guest voices? We do. We have actual guest stars, real live guest stars. Uh, including David Gerald, who we've actually talked about before as a writer. Yeah. So- <laughs> Wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, the tri- the More Troubles, More Tribbles. Uh, we've, we've talked about this before. Like, um, It's going to work on an upcoming episode called Beam, yeah. Bem, and... Uh, was the guy, as we covered in the original uh, Trouble with Tribbles episode, I just love it, worked briefly for Next Generation, but was too edgy. <laughs> well, maybe maybe we could have an alternative timeline where uh, TNG was more edgy. That know. would be great. <laughs> anyway, he voices a character named M3 Green. Yep. Like, actual, like, you got like slashes between the three of those yes. things as opposed to like other punctuate em slash the number three slash green green so it's like a designation or i don't know a registration number there we go. i don't know what yeah and this is just hilarious to me the background information on this is um 
both of the women that they normally have on the show were gone this week when they recorded yeah. this. So I gotta have to get somebody else because we have like female characters. Yeah, so they brought in a voice actor named Jane Webb, who voices a character called Lara, um, and the Vedalin. Vedalin. Vedalin, who's just another random character here. Um, She did a lot of voice work in radio and transitioned into cartoons, and she just was a voice actor who did a lot of work for. Uh, filmation so she was just one of the people they had around basically Indeed. she even voiced a version of batgirl at one point in their thing so this is the second batgirl neat <laughs> you know uh, barbara gordon returns in a different form on star trek <laughs> who would have expected to have so many batgirls in this show <laughs> you see star trek and uh, batman apparently take place in the same cosmos or something <laughs> wouldn't surprise me uh, also, uh, she worked on uh, something called Sabrina the Teenage Witch, but not the one most people remember. Not the other one either. The one from the s- 60s and 70s, yes. A cartoon based on the comic, <laughs> but not that one. And, and, and yeah, not the other one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, a bit of a you know, prolific voice actor for, uh, during that time period. But apparently... Uh, First credit was our leading citizen in 1939. Phone <laughs> operator. Our leading citizen. Yeah, I've never heard of that before. Neither. Was that on the radio or is that a cartoon? Uh, was, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's not a cartoon, but uh, uh, Lem Shafford practices law in a formerly small town that has grown to be an industrialized big city. He bases ideals... On the examples of, set by Abraham Lincoln, never wavers in them. Um, okay. <laughs> oh my God. It's like propaganda, the show. Okay. <laughs> Probably the radio. Right, so, Sounds like the radio. So, uh, yeah. divergent from uh, that, back to the episode. <laughs> yes. Let's just get started. There's some, there's some stuff in here. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see where this goes, because, Wow. The Enterprise has been called to rendezvous with a Videlan asteroid. Yes, just like an asteroid, like you go and be there, and it's like an Earth-like planet, but it's an asteroid. Yeah. Apparently the Videla are the oldest spacefaring race. Yes, that they know of, but yes. Yeah, except for the ones that came before that we learned about in a couple episodes ago, but they're all extinct, so... Yeah, they're all dead, so it doesn't matter. Then they say that something incredibly dangerous is happening, and they need the best specialists in the galaxy. And to that end, Kirk and Spock have been called upon, because they're two of the best specialists in the galaxy, apparently. Yes, uh, you know, Kirk for his leadership ability, Spock for, like, being competent, just generally. What a freaking cr- Like, Spock I, Spock, I can understand. He's, like, the best scientist in the Federation, according to this stuff. But, like... Kirk is the best leader in the galaxy. <laughs> or something. <laughs> Maybe it was more of a, well, if we take Spock, we have to bring Kirk too. Uh, let's make up an excuse, because otherwise he'll just, like, complain and, like, mess up our plan or something. <laughs> <laughs> they beam to the asteroid to meet with Char the Birdman, who is Prince of Score, which I guess is the Birdman planet. Yes. Now, these are, are different Birdmans technically than the Aurelians, which we saw in yesteryear, uh, but they look almost exactly the same. They're so. literally reused characters, but yes. <laughs> but they're apparently different, completely different species. Yes, uh, we had enough. Uh, these are just humans, but we call them something different from, you know, original series that we could just do with animation now, I guess. Also here is M3 Green, the lock-picking bug man. Yes, sir. Apparently he's like a convict, but they're like, eh, well, you're good at your job, so uh, we'll put you like on a, a work, you know, visa thing with Jig over to this asteroid now. And we have Sword, the lizard. Who does something, but we don't really learn what it Unspecified. Unspecified yeah. something. <laughs> Miscellaneous. <laughs> and Lara, the human tracker who has an unerring sense of direction. Well, that's kind of cool. Uh, you know, you know, uh. She's also like dressed in like furs and things like that. Yes. And so it's like, she's like, I'm back to nature, but I can 
tell all the directions. It comes out later that she's apparently from some like other human colony that we've heretofore not heard of. Yeah, well, uh, we have run into situations where like the the preserver is like kidnapped a bunch of humans, put on another planet. So it could be one of those sort of situations. Yeah, something like that. We don't know. (laughs) (laughs) They are briefed by a character only identified as a Valean female. Uh, Vidala. Vidala. Vidala female. It's a little hard to say. (laughs) Uh, She's a big fluffy kitty. She is a big fluffy kitty who... I I don't know how to describe this. I couldn't write it down. So there's a couple times when she's she's just standing there in a slightly awkward position, but okay, non-human anatomy, and just talks to them. And then every now and then she needs to use... I guess some sort of superpower or mind power or something to like conjure a thing. Or at one point she, she uses that to teleport them to the place they're going to go. She, she does a weird cat scream every time she'll be in the middle of a sense. And now it's time for you to go. (laughs) Okay. then. (laughs) So uh, I guess it is alien. So, uh, I guess we can sort of just do that. Um, maybe that's like how they communicate with their super powerful, you know, machines or psychic network or whatever to in order to uh, cause the effects. Yeah, I guess it's not really explained or hinted at. So <laughs> alternatively, it's a, uh, you know, just a, uh, all right, this is going to be a pain in the ass. Uh, I'm going to scream before I do it so I can focus. Uh, there we go. <laughs> So their mission, should they choose to accept it, is to go to a geologically unstable planet full of volcanoes, shifting landscapes, and other such dangers, and find the soul of Skor. Ah, cool. Uh, who's Skor? This is a religious artifact that holds the brain patterns of Alar, who was a great Skor religious leader who gave them the ways of peace, because apparently they used to just rampage around the galaxy doing wars and such. And then Alar taught them the ways of peace, and then they stored his brain in a sculpture. And now that's the most important thing in their society. But the soul has been stolen, and now as soon as the score realize that it's gone, they will start doing war again. Getting some weird flashbacks to uh, my uh, watch through of the fourth season of Enterprise here. Hmm. <laughs> Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> also, apparently, the thing that makes the score incredibly dangerous warriors—they breathe yes. quick. So, oh yeah, we're going to have like two hundred billion like soldiers in like two years if we're uh, if we're uh, sufficiently pissed off. So, um, yeah, being birds, maybe they just have like an egg storage place somewhere, and all they need to do is turn on the incubator, and then in two <laughs> years, like boom, army. Yeah, well, that's kind of convenient, really. <laughs> Wait a moment. Where were these guys during the Dominion War when we were facing, you know, infinite, you know, uh, numbers of clone troopers there? They had the soul back. So they're all peaceful now. Oh, all right. So they're not going to fight. Guess they, you know, I guess they didn't get involved in that conflict. Hmm. So Videla explains that the danger of the missions, um, I quote, direct quote, because I loved it. Three expeditions have tried to recover this. Three expeditions have been lost. You are next. <laughs> um, thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> <laughs> like, bye. Also, just the implication here. They they bring the best of the best. And they've lost three expeditions. Which means, like, now Kirk is the best leader in the galaxy. <laughs> but he was actually fourth down. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we, we, we managed to get Captain Pike over here. Uh, Commodore Pike and... Yeah, sure. He was in his, uh, you know, uh, you know, chair thing with Jake, but the, uh, we got a Telosian to hang out with him, just to get him to, to uh, run around. But now he's gone too. So, uh, <laughs> so I guess we got to got two other people then Kirk. <laughs> like, are we the we're the best in the galaxy? You well, you are now. <laughs> <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> they all agree to go, and then Rar power, and they all disappear. The power of Rar. <laughs> so, so, we, so we go to the planet where the uh, there's not a weather report, but a, a, geolo- a geology report, right? Yeah, they are suddenly on the planet in question. Also, with an open-topped rover sort of thing sold separately. Oh, we got a sweet ride. Yeah. <laughs> 
Kirk sends Char to fly ahead and scout while they uh, break the navigation system in the car. Whoops. Um, why did you do that, guys? Yeah. Come on. They, as soon as I can tell, they turn it on and it just explodes immediately. It doesn't matter because Lara can't get lost. It's why she's here. Yes. So, um, you know, whatever is killing the computer here is apparently unaffect, you know, not affecting her. So, yeah. Cool. Also, she really likes Kirk, and she's going to say so, because her planet is mostly women, so they tell men when they like them, and she likes him. Hey, Kirk, do you want to make some green time here? Yeah, what did that mean? I think that means, uh, you know, find some bushes and uh, have some fun. <laughs> that explains why it's green. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, she does keep, she refers to it as like, we could have a green time. And he goes, I've had a lot of green times. Like, oh, you're a oh, man slut. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it is, again, a planet that's, uh, you know, has a, a large population of women compared to men, you know, you might kind of expect that to be sort of the common vibe for guys there. You know, if you're only, you know, you know if you were in high demand, you get to change your society, perhaps. But. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe she doesn't like that, though. Maybe that's why she's here, really. So Kirk very uncharacteristically wants to stay on mission. When a woman is interested, ooh, when he's, like, <laughs> hanging out with a 19-year-old, he can't keep his brain on what's on the job. That's a little awkward. Kirk, you need to, like, become less creepy. So they set out in a pouring rainstorm, but just to demonstrate how low random this planet is, the sun suddenly comes out. And... Char senses the soul nearby in a large gem-shaped building, but since nothing can be that easy, suddenly a lava flow is happening. Oh no, the lava. It's going to destroy our car. Yeah. Um, Kirk wants to block it with something. Okay. Spock wants to outrun it by rewiring the car to use all of its battery in one burst, and they decide to do both. Cool. Um, so uh, let's do both then. Yeah. Um I know, no debate particularly. <laughs> Kirk, Sword, and Lara run up a cliff to drop large boulders in the path of the lava, which is very conveniently in a narrow canyon that's exactly the width of the three boulders that they push down into it. While Spock and M3 Green rewire the rover in a way that's apparently super delicate and finicky, or it will continue to explode. Well, uh, I guess these are the two that be able to handle that, I guess. Uh, wait a moment, we've got, got basically the perfect setup here. This is this is a D&D adventure, Gapwood. Yeah, it's it's the party. <laughs> We've got you know, the the Sp prince dude. We've got mage, I guess Spock's the mage, smart yeah, guy. So yeah, he's definitely with definitely the wizard. Yeah, then M3 Green's the rogue. Mm -hmm. Sword, I guess is your very quiet warrior. Yeah, he's the fighter. Um, I'm guessing that makes uh Kirk probably the paladin. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kirk Paladin and I guess lawful neutral Paladin. And then uh, Lara's the, I guess, Ranger. Ranger. Her pet died, I guess, which is why Rangers in 5e are the worst class. Don't let, don't let your, your big kitty die unless it has ability to teleport you between planets. Then you don't have to worry about it. <laughs> uh, we should do a uh, we should do a one-off where we get all the Star Trek people to do Star Trek D&D. &D. <laughs> all right this is technically in D D, but it's also technically star trek uh you just don't have any phasers today <laughs> i have half a plan for this so you know i've been mulling this over for a while we'll figure Excellent. it out yeah well, let let me know when you do that want to do that <laughs> so they finish up just in time get away at full speed from the lava flow but then they hit the most dangerous thing on the entire planet a small rock Dun, dun, dun. The rover jumps, yeah, Spock is thrown over the side, and he goes, leave me, but Kirk jumps out and saves him, and they stand there, arguing about whether they should save him, while the lava moves closer. <laughs> you know, you guys could be at least walking casually away. <laughs> so they do that would be something. move and get to high ground just in time for a snowstorm to start. Well, uh, this should maybe slow the lava somewhat, maybe? Uh, probably not. It's probably just going to create a lot of mist, honestly. Yeah. So they have to go on foot from here. Sword has to carry M3 Green because he's decided to give up on life. <laughs> yeah. If I was M3 Green, I'd probably be the same. Yeah, actually. he just lies down and goes like, no, tired, let me die. 
<laughs> this adventure sucks. I'm out of hit points. Uh. We've all played with that guy. <laughs> they set out towards the building the soul seems to be in. Uh, Sword keeps thinking he sees something moving around, but there shouldn't be anything alive on this planet, so maybe his eyes are just playing tricks on him. Maybe that's his special ability. Really good perception. They finally approach the building. Uh, Lara hits on Kirk again and is shut out. Yeah. No, no, Kirk is not interested. Kirk does the hitting on in this party. Yeah, you know, Kirk uh, you know, is totally in love with the Enterprise whenever someone approaches him. But if it's the reverse, then yeah, we'll not worry about the Enterprise today. Mm-hmm. So, Green goes to unlock the door of the giant building thingy, which apparently will explode if he doesn't do it fast enough. Just then, they're attacked by purple pterodactyls. Again, this I know is, we didn't have this previous this episode, but we've been attacked by these things before. Yeah, I, I, I was joking about starting a counter for these things, <laughs> but my God, <laughs> they just keep coming up over and over, reusing the same animation. Like, so oh, Kirk, it's a different background, technically. I, I don't care. It's still the same animation. <laughs> yeah, purple pterodactyls again. One of them, I will say, the one on. The vacation planet, the shore leave episode, was a different purple pterodactyl. Fairly. These ones are just all reused animation. <laughs> Hello, critters from the Infinite Vulcan. <laughs> so Kirk shoots one and it explodes, which means it's apparently a robot confirming there's no actual life on the planet. Ha ha! Gotcha. Ah, it's all just robots, man. Because that matters. Yes. <laughs> one of them grabs Char out of the air and flies away because they can't shoot or they might hit Char. Uh, with the danger gone, M3 Green gets through the door and the rest of the group head inside. Well, um, so we're not a party member, but hey, at least we're here, right? The soul is hanging apparently out of reach in the shot. It looks like it's right there, but apparently it's really high up in the air and they can't get to it. Yeah, well, it's it's all an optical illusion. You know, space is warped, time bendable, that sort of thing, yeah. I guess. <laughs> So the door shuts behind them, and there's no latch on the inside, so they're trapped. This confirms Kirk's suspicions that he has yet to voice that one of the party has betrayed them because the expeditions keep failing, and there's no other explanation for why so many expeditions have failed on this super dangerous planet that's almost killed them five times. Yes. <laughs> those, some of those times were due to their own incompetence, so... Well, I guess this is why you're the fourth group down. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a moment. Is this another case of you know someone trying to kill off Kirk? Maybe. So Kirk looks around, goes, "Oh, these walls are impossible to climb. How are we going to get up there? I know. I'll climb up this wall." <laughs> All right, we're just going to do the thing we can't do. Uh, cool. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets up to there, helps everyone up except for Sword because he doesn't climb. He's a big uh, guana guy. He just gonna stand on the ground looking back i'm pretty sure this is supposed to be a fake out of like oh one of them's the traitor oh sword's not coming along with them who could it be (laughs) well it could be him who's doing nothing down there or the guy that's out of sight right now because he got abducted by the robots yeah yeah so uh it's not hard people (laughs) so they get close to the soul and an energy blast hits the wall next to them, confirming Kirk's other suspicion that it was Char the whole time. Well, if you were sus- suspecting him, why didn't you say that when he was gone? I'm not here to complain about or defend himself. Yeah, no, that's not how Kirk rolls. <laughs> well, Kirk maybe was just suspecting everyone. And when he's proven right, he's like, oh, yeah, I thought it was him all the yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> and then Lara stabs him in the back. He goes, ha this confirms my other suspicion. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, she doesn't do that. She, she just wants to get laid. Uh. <laughs> so sure enough, Char flies down and starts monologuing all over them. Uh, so he stole the soul. Because he's the crown prince, or whatever, of his people. And his people are weak, and they used to be warriors, and not all peaceful. So now he stole the soul and kept it hidden from them, so that when they figure it out, they'll be mad and start going to war again. But then he teamed up with these guys to get it 
back, several teams of them, in fact, it sounds like. So was was he on the team every time and just came back alone? Was like, oh, sorry. What what well, happened he here? Did find it. Sorry. Oh. It would have been nice if the Vidalids had like mentioned that. Guess we have to keep hiding it from my people who will totally find out one day, which is my plan. <laughs> anyway, they're all gonna die noble deaths for a great purpose to take over the galaxy, and it's great. It's, it's yeah, the so, best. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna have infinite war forever, and uh, you should be proud of that, guys. Come on. And the grim darkness is the far future. <laughs> he turns on an anti-gravity field so that everyone can fly like the score do and fight with with bird honor. So uh, I guess there at least it's a fair fight today, I guess. I guess, except it's not cuz this isn't flying, it's anti-gravity and Kirk and Spock have Starfleet anti-gravity combat training. Yeah, they know how to like push off objects and headbutt things, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> they grab Char's wings. Kirk then hooks his foot around the sole and calls for an exit. All right, uh, you know, we got a, a, a operator. This is uh, the, uh, you know, the people on the uh, Nebuchadnezzar bringing you out of there. Uh, just do you have a phone nearby? No? Okay, I guess we'll just teleport you out. Earlier, they were like, hey, we're here. And it was a long, hard journey. And they're like, well, don't get comfortable. We still have to walk back. Now they have a <laughs> button that teleports them out immediately. <laughs> Well, maybe they were expecting that they'd get like teleported to the wrong place on the asteroid or something like that, maybe, <laughs> and have to walk back on there. I, I don't know. Yeah, that's a bit they cut out was them having to walk all the way across the asteroid. <laughs> Thankfully, it's only an asteroid, and so it's low gravity, um, other than the gravity enough to have an atmosphere. Uh, yeah, this doesn't make any sense. So, Videla brings them all back. Job done. Char will be re-educated so that he stops being crazy. And warmongery, and then sent back to his people, all fine and dandy. I don't know, that seems like a huge violation of his uh, personal autonomy there, myself. Yeah. Uh, sure, he kind of mm. sucks, but really? You get to reprogram him? So, they're all returned to where they started, and no one's going to remember what happened eventually. Their memories will fade, everyone's not going to know that they did this, it's just too dangerous of a mission. Because if anyone ever found out that this was the thing that happened, uh, it would be disaster for everyone. Uh, war. Lara says pay you, one sorry. last goodbye to Kirk before they all disappear. They head back to the transporter room, where Sulu is confused because they've only gone a couple of minutes. And Kirk confirms that the Videla didn't actually need them because the danger's done. So they changed oh, their minds. Well, that's, that's useful, uh... What are we going to do now? We have, like, we were good planning to, like, hang out over this asteroid for, like, a week while you get your stuff sorted out. Yeah, now they're just going to leave and go on to the next thing, I guess. Shore leave? I don't know. Uh, we already did shore leave this this uh, season. Uh, I don't know. Cut to the next season. It'll be a long one for sure, won't it? <laughs> um, actually, is the next one the next season? This might be yeah. technically the last episode of the first season. Yes, uh... And the, the, there are six more episodes after this, and they're all season two. Yeah, even though it doesn't really matter because there's only six episodes, so it's not much of a season. <laughs> the shortest season of Star Trek ever! Anyway, since you brought this up and it was near the end, this is something that we... We had the chance to talk about this a couple times with their prison episodes, but like I think it's pretty well demonstrated here. Their, their whole, like... Anyone who disagrees with us is mentally ill and we can fix that is a bit troubling. Yes. So there's a there are some ideas um I think the most the probably the most well-known and famous uh people who wrote along these lines was Foucault, but it's not like an uncommon philosophical idea that um the way that a society defines mental illness is really a definition of people who do not fit well within the framework of that society. And the entire idea that you can then fix them so that they fit back into the framework of the society is saying some interesting things. Namely, that the society itself functions to enough of a degree that everyone should be forced to live inside of it, and that anyone who doesn't live outside, who then lives outside of the arbitrary boundaries that you have set, is sick enough that they need to be addressed in order for their standard of living to be okay, or for them to not be dangerous. 
I don't really got a good, good thing to follow up on, on that there. Uh, other than there is, uh, I guess it is very limiting and it does discourage thinking, you know, you know, thinking that is going to be pushing the edges of that society to cause it to be unsettled enough for, you know, changes, uh, you know, one way or the other. Uh, you know, I'm not going to, you know, pre-evaluate what those changes are going to be, but is, you know, if someone is not fitting well with society, it may be because there is actually something fundamentally wrong with the society and not the person. And so if you get, you can very easily run into a situation where, you know, there is a, you know, a, a general problem that is being actively ignored because it's being oppressed by this sort of a, you know, arbitrary, all right, we're going to make you make sure everyone fits in the society one way or another sort of a vibe. You do want, yeah, you wind up with a bit of an issue that um, if there's something harmful that's happening in the society, but it's happening to everyone, and some people, for whatever reason, are in a position where they are harmed by it less, you then define the people who are harmed by it more as mentally ill and try to fix them, but everyone is actually being harmed by this thing. You're just using the fact that some people are harmed more basically to justify the fact that this should exist. In some ways, it's uh, a bit of uh, treating the, the symptom and not the cause. Which is a lot of what we do with these things. And, and the, the kind of definitional problem that you get into when you're talking about mental illness is it's defined by societal norms. And that is how you wind up in situations like how until quite recently being homosexual or transgender was considered a mental illness that you would be treated for. And the way that they talk about it, if you listen to interviews of people who, like there are still people who are working therapists who defend this because they say that people come to them and tell them that the fact that they are homosexual is causing them pain in their daily life because it is something that's not accepted in society. And so instead of, you know, offering up a option of like, well, maybe screw society here, or, you know, maybe the society that you are participating in is unhealthy for you. And maybe you should seek a situation or a life pattern where you're going to avoid those elements. Uh, yeah. Now we're going to uh, instead try to force who you are to be different in order to conform. And that can be quite painful and just make the problem worse. Yeah. But you can see the argument because you've wound up in a situation where the way you are treated because you are considered different from the mainstream society is causing you pain. So a way to fix that is to get you to conform to mainstream society so that other people will stop treating you badly. Like, it is a way to fix the problem that you came in with. Like, it, it definitionally fits a mental illness, which is why it was considered one for so long. Well, of course, you know, there's that whole, you know, suicide rate, even with folks that are trying to sort of go this path here, that maybe suggests that, I don't know, this is this idea of this being, a you know, a, a valid, you know, method of uh, solving the problem is not necessarily doing what it's being sold as. Well, the reason that this changed is because there was a concerted political effort by a lot of activists who were saying, no, this isn't causing us a problem except for the fact that we are being treated badly. And yes. they weren't taken seriously for a long time. They had to keep going to conferences and meetings and other things. And eventually they finally got some therapists to actually listen to them and hang out with them enough that they realized that being homosexual was not ruining their lives intrinsically, and they were able to change it in the next version of the DSM. Um, but this was a political change. They weren't looking at any actual evidence of outcomes or things, because when you have a negative outcome in something like therapy, they usually consider it a failing on the part of the person who they're trying to change, because they're just not trying hard enough or their disease is too great and they are untreatable there's there's all kinds of ways that the system self-reinforces and just becomes like its own mechanism for enforcing the societal norms 
Yeah, I'm ha- having that, the vision of that one uh, bit of The Simpsons there where it's like, am I out of touch? No, it's the children who are wrong. Yeah. I know when I talk like this, I can come off as very, very negative towards the entire idea of therapy or mental illness. And I, I think that there is a definite balance to strike here because there are situations where someone is in a bad place for themselves and they need help to address that in a certain way that they can get from something like therapy or even, you know, uh, medication as down as I am on some of these ideas overall. But we, we have to be very careful and look into the power structure here because it's something that goes unexamined a lot of the time. If you go to therapy with a problem, the person who is your therapist gets to define what is normal and how you should be acting in accordance to that. Which is uh, putting a lot of trust into them. And so it is very important to make sure that you are getting into a relationship there with someone that is worthy of that trust. Who is, you know, who is able to see that, you know, when, you know, as if this is a case of, oh, this, you know, this this person's just kind of being, you know, crapped on because of who they are versus, you know, no, this is somebody who is actually, you know, suffering and, you know, independent of what the sort of outside world's doing, you know, there's some fundamental uh, thing that we should be working on and, and uh, restructuring. And, you know, it, it it's something that is very much a, you need to be going into this with a, you know, this sort of, you know, understanding of this dynamic in order to find the person that's going to work well for what your needs are. And this becomes a bit of an issue. I have, I have spoken to so many therapists who will not examine this power dynamic. They... They don't want to admit that a power dynamic exists. They don't want to look into this idea that they get to define reality. We are very in this scientifying of therapy mode right now, where everything is supposed to be like evidence-based outcomes is the kind of key phrase. And when you are able to look at something in that kind of way, you're able to say, well, it's been scientifically proven that this is the case and i mean if you actually look at the way that they do these studies and examine outcomes there's a lot of problems with it it's a soft science to begin with so using it as very very hard data doesn't make sense but it is also kind of just reinforcing the problem where people don't want to engage with this core philosophical issue that is kind of at the heart of therapy and needs to be looked at as someone with a bit more of a hard science stem background you know, it is very important, even in the you know the so-called hard sciences uh, sciences, to be actively skeptical of people's uh, you know work and studies and things like that. Uh, and you know, it's like even if they see appear to be doing everything correct, to go through when you're you know having a look to make sure that everything that they're doing actually makes you know uh, you know good sense and isn't missing some important fundamental aspects here. Because if you just kind of take everything at their word, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, we did a, did a thing and then we did the results and this totally means this. Then that can very easily lead to a series of, you know, ill-formed conclusions, which could throw everything off for decades on end. And that's just kind of horrible. And that's with, like, physics, <laughs> which, you know, people say is like, one of the more hard or sciences there. But still, you have to have this, you know, even on, on that sort of extreme, having a very uh, healthy amount of skepticism all the time is important. And when you're going to something where it's a lot more, um, you know, there's a lot more, uh, you know, subject subjectivity, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, psychology, that's even it's even more needed because, you know, there is so much more to be skeptical about because there is so much we don't know about. And so to sort of, you know, say that, oh, we're turning this into hard science like all right that doesn't mean you have to be you can get away with being lazy on this front well that's what's so weird there's there's things that can be looked at scientifically and should be but there's also stuff that fundamentally cannot be it just doesn't fit into the scientific framework that we use while i understand that science is very important i'm very up on science i'm not trying to downplay how important research and scientific thinking is the fact that something cannot be measured scientifically 
doesn't mean it's unimportant or doesn't exist. Yes. Because you can't actually look at a lot of things that therapy is dealing with scientifically because it's all internal experiences. You can't disprove someone's mood. And if you can't disprove something, you cannot use the scientific method to observe it. The best you can sort of do is to assume that they are both feeling it and not feeling it. And, uh, and then do, you know, take up a, a, a line of action or reasoning or argument that is going to either make that marginally irrelevant, which is kind of a jerk move, or that will allow them to, you know, that will give them the best output, you know, depend, you know, independent of which one those are. Uh, and, uh, you know, or you can make an educated guess and try and pick one and try to go forward. And then you might be completely wrong and then you could be doing a lot of harm in the process. And so there's a lot of, I guess, evaluation and choices you can, you can sort of uh, get up to there that is going to be, you know, set up in a, a, a fashion that there is risk and there is not really much scientific judgment or pattern making or whatever you can sort of apply here because – yeah, this person's kind of an individual and you don't know fully what's going on inside. So, Yeah, and I think the important thing to look at is just because you cannot prove or disprove someone's mood doesn't mean it's unimportant, which is yes. something that we get into. I heard this story recently where there, uh, recently a book was published about what they're calling the compassion crisis in uh, health, where doctors lack empathy, like provably lack empathy. And... It's causing a lot of outcome problems because you can see that the more comfortable and compassionate a doctor is around a patient, the better the health outcomes. But people were talking about it like it didn't matter until they found a way to quantifiably study it. But no, instead of just looking at it and going like treating someone well could be a thing to do, maybe in and of yeah. itself, whether or not we can prove scientifically that it increases outcomes. Like, why are we arguing to treat people badly? We really shouldn't be doing that, guys. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a direct move. Now, also, people generally feel better if they're not being treated like a car at a shop. Yeah, so, but can uh, you prove it with yeah. science? Because <laughs> otherwise, I don't want to hear it. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Get your soft science out of here. <laughs> it's all squishy. So, uh, yeah, uh, long story short, don't be a jerk and people will be, will like what's going on better and that may help people. So yeah, <laughs> just sort of general this is something that's been kind of demonstrated throughout history, not just today in the most recent study. So, so it's meant longer on that than I meant to just, just was something I've been thinking about recently and happened to line up. Uh, another thing, let's jump from one horribly controversial topic that if we had more viewers would get some comments about to <laughs> religion. That's fun. Jihad? <laughs> well, we could do jihad, but the basic premise, we should talk about jihad, but the basic premise of this episode, which is somewhat interesting, I don't want to delve too deep into it because it's a very, they're doing a very surface level thing here, and there's, there's a lot to get into on this particular topic, uh, but... The basic premise that they're working with with this episode is that religion is some sort of thing that exists to control, I guess, the natural impulses of a society. Because the implication here is that the natural impulse of this particular society is to be warlike and violent. This religion is preventing them from doing so to the point that them discovering the loss of a religious artifact would cause them to become warlike again. Yeah, this is a, a very, okay, if this was as, you know, this is as deep as your belief in this religion goes, then that kind of makes a big question of, do you actually believe it? Or are you using this as an excuse not to go all murder uh, hobo on us? Yeah, it is an interesting one that you don't seem to have fundamentally taken in the core aspects of your religion, you're just not doing war because you have a shiny object. Yes. <laughs> Which, uh, if, you're, uh, if your faith in your, your belief is this shallow, maybe it's not really religion. It's more of a agreement, I guess. Yeah, Act. as long as we have this thing, we agree to not do war. 
Okay. Uh, cool. Uh, should we call it a, 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 a the, the contract? No, we're going to call it the covenant and pretend it's a religion. Okay. <laughs> that then. does seem to be the difference. <laughs> so, uh, I, I guess the, the, if you sort of view it as, as a very surface level covenant sort of thing, it kind of works kind of, but it's like, all right, well, this is more of a, you just have to have this and everything works out sort of thing. I, yeah, I, I'm kind of a loss of how this fake religion actually is supposed to work. Yeah. Other than there's something about don't murder everyone. Unless I'm not here, I guess. <laughs> but there is a kind of thing. Like, this is both something that's argued both on the pro-religious and anti-religious side, which I find kind of interesting. People who are advocating for not religion per se, but more religion as a guiding principle of society um, will make arguments like the only reason that people don't murder someone is because religion says it's wrong. And people who are more on the anti-religious side will make the same argument but then say that's stupid. <laughs> so, uh, I guess the, 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 the $64,000 question on this front is what is morality, and where does it uh, get derived from? Yes, which people have been arguing for years. <laughs> oh, more than more than years. <laughs> I mean, I think personally, there's a very weird tangle effect because, as we've talked about, the Ouroboros of pop culture, we also have a very Ouroborosy sort of uh, society generally. You probably start with some very innate, inbuilt moral ideas that just are there because that's something that we see in a lot of social species. There's pro-social behaviors that allow a species to be social, and humans as a social species have developed a set of pro-social behaviors. Those behaviors are then interpreted as either morals or guidelines or laws or religious values, which then further reinforce certain aspects of those and de-emphasize other aspects of those, which then lead to societal evolution along certain lines, which reinforces and de-reinforces them over the course of history. And la-di-da, there we go. All right. So we're, we're starting with this basic core thing was like, oh, we can sort of notice that this person over here is not trying to kill us. Maybe we could like, you, you know, you know, do something together that makes both our lives less awful. And then a few thousand years later, hey, we have a society. <laughs> mm -hmm. You wind up with certain things that you've demonstrated in most social species, like a value for sharing, an ability to hold a grudge, <laughs> things that evolutionarily make sense for the development of social behaviors and cooperation and things that would make make a social species advantageous and then you can kind of extrapolate those like the fact that we tend to dislike hurting each other makes sense from a social species aspect because if you hurt another individual in your social group they are harmed and therefore can do less to contribute to the group's survival as a whole so i guess maybe the uh, the $64,000 question then is a technical one and not a philosophical one in that case. Uh, though there is, uh, you know, plenty of opportunity to reinforce that technical, uh, you know, derivation via a, you know, you know, a, a social one, a religious one, a philosophical one. And it's like, all right, so we need, you know, we feel like for whatever reason, we need to have more backup for this because, you know, being our limited selves here, you know, fully understanding the, you know, processes of how societies develop is not necessarily something that we can all sort of contain in into our, you know, our heads because you either a lack of education, I we just haven't been exposed to the ideas at all or ever. Uh, so we kind of have to produce these elements that are going to uh, provide the basic reasoning explanations like, oh yeah, so this does make sense given x even if x is just you know whatever we decide decided it is today and you know various you know uh you know societies kind of have various uh different sort of uh starting places there and that's fine you know 
Yeah, you wind up in um oh I forget I forget what it was called. There's a there's a common term for this. It's basically the unperformable experiment, which is the core problem that you run into with human behavior. Um you cannot raise a human outside of a social context. Therefore, you can never decouple innate human behavior from societally learned human behavior. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll put someone on the moon. Um, they will die. Right, well, yeah, they'll die. All right, so we have to put them in the capsule. All right, well, what, what, how do we design this capsule? Because... Uh, this is going to be affecting them in some fashion. <laughs> well, so you wind up with a problem. We are such a social species that not only are our young 100% dependent on others to survive for years, but being left alone with no social interaction does not create a default human. It creates a maladapted human who does not exhibit normal human behaviors because not having social interaction is so bad for people that leaving them alone for too long causes them to die. Like, well, um, I'm missing something fundamental for my life. I'm not operating correctly anymore. Uh, I guess I'm just going to die then. Yeah, hmm. humans are this one sucks. of the most social species on the planet. It is probably our sole major evolutionary advantage if you want to look at things that way. Like, like the the very fact that we need so much social interaction makes it fundamentally impossible to separate innate and socialized behavior as much as we want to try. You just can't. There's no way to separate out societal influence on behavior, no matter what that behavior is. So uh, maybe we should stop trying. <laughs> yeah, there is no way to know what is fundamentally innate human behavior, fundamental differences anything you just can't so stop talking about fundamental anything there is no innate human anything i guess to uh for uh, anyone uh, of the stam variety is tuned out you got a quantum system that you can only measure inside an environment otherwise your you know your 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 schrodinger uh, equations is gonna, is is ill defined because you always have to have uh you know you're trying to look at your your fine your, your fine structure here and if you don't have an external magnetic field you're not going to see it. Come on. Yeah, that made some kind of sense to someone. <laughs> uh, so maybe something a little more uh, approachable uh, before we uh, get to the last segment here. Uh, uh, do you want to talk about jihad at all? Yeah, we probably should. <laughs> to uh, use an overused quote, I don't think that word means what you think it means. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the sort of core basic translation from Arabic uh, means either striving or struggling uh, and uh, sometimes kind of both at the same time. And so this doesn't, uh, the in the West, the popularized version is like, oh yes, someone's on jihad and that means that they're going to war and trying to take over North Africa. Yeah, or either like a that. religious war or some kind of religious vendetta death cult sort of thing. Yeah. And that's, a very, very, very limited sort of definition of what it is when it can mean a lot more different things. Uh, for instance, there is, you know, the, sort of the, quote, uh, greater or inner jihad, uh, which is all about the internal struggles, you know, trying to become a more moral person, a more, uh, you know, sort through your, you know, your internal conflicts and to seek a more... Uh, harmonious sort of life and uh, a better version of yourself. Uh, and this is seen as sort of the, I guess, the, the morally uh, more, I guess, you know, uh, I mean, we shouldn't uh, sort of de define it as, as more of anything, but more of a, a purer version, I guess, in a certain way. Um, but there is still the external uh, sort of jihads where you're trying to, you know, solve some sort of uh, uh, problem and you could either do it through say debate, like you're going to make an argument. It's like we need to accomplish this goal. So I'm going to go out there into the world and, you know, uh, talk to people and try to convince them that this is something that we should be doing. So I'm going to struggle. I'm going to strive for this outcome and I'm, there's no violence involved with this at all. And so the, 
sort of the westernized uh, version where it's, you know, the, you know, the jihad equals war is leaving out a lot of stuff here. And that's kind of uh, unfair, I guess, because it, you know, because it also means that if someone is from an, you know, sort of the outside uh, viewer, uh, you know, you know, has very little, uh, you know, normal contact with the, uh, the Arabic world uh, is, you know, starts, runs into someone who's talking about jihad that might instantly jump to, oh, this person's a terrorist or some bullshit, but they're actually talking about their internal struggles with, say, uh, some sort of addiction. I don't know. It sounds pretty analogous to if you, in English, were to completely conflate uh, conflict and war. Yes. Yeah, you know, uh, now I, I have a, uh, I have a conflict with my, with my brother. So you're trying to kill each other? No, no uh, disagreeing over what kind of pizza to get. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and, yeah. And so it's, it's very much a, there's the, the Hollywood version. And then there's the actual, you know, what's actually this is. And, but because, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the West uh, English speaking world has traditionally not had a lot of direct contact with the Arabic world is to sort of have this be a, a concept that is, you know, well understood in a very cross-cultural sort of uh, mean uh, means, except in moments when we're having, uh, you know, uh, you know, co- uh, you know, militarized conflict. Uh, it's, it's, it's very much tainted the term, uh, especially in the uh, post 9-11 world, the post uh, Iranian revolution world. Uh, and so basically after this episode was made, it became a lot more controversial uh, just a few years later and then way more controversial later uh, due to uh, world events that are going on. And it definitely plays into a lot of the Islamophobia that we're dealing with today. Also, interestingly, it ties into a concept that we've talked about a couple of times, which would be Orientalism, where yes. the Western scholars, and in this case more the Western media, get to define something about an Eastern, or in this case Middle Eastern culture, being we've now redefined this word, which in a religious context means something akin to struggle or conflict into scary, scary holy war. Yes. Not just war, so, but scary holy war. <laughs> Unjustified holy war. You know, they're coming for your kids and all that, and you better, you know, uh, you know, donate all your time to supporting the troops or else everything will be uh, terrible and you'll all die from WMDs or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and to a certain degree, even like, you know, centuries back, uh, you know, medieval scholars, Renaissance scholars on forward, you know, the, uh, the, the folks that, you know, in the West that are at all talking about, you know, Islam uh, or the Arabic world in general, you know, their li- understanding of the term was also very limited. And so it sort of pre-primed the Western world to not understand what the heck's going on. <laughs> It's just one of those lingering problems that uh, is of misunderstanding that is, you know, you know, con- you know, consistent and unfortunate. And so, you know, here on Watches of Tomorrow, once again, it's good to demystify something that is not well understood. Yeah, if you can define even some base terms, like this is seems this is not an uncommon word that would be used in many religious contexts. So, being able to define it as Anytime this word is used, it's scary and you should be scared is a very fundamental propaganda technique to very vilify in a culture, which is pretty wrong. We should stop doing that. Uh, though I, I will say that there is sort of the inverse to a certain degree of the term crusade, uh, that, you know, someone can go on a crusade to uh, of uh, social justice uh, in the West but uh, you know, in you know other parts of the world, that's gonna be like, oh, you're going to invade us and uh, take over Lebanon or something like that. Could you not do that, please? That is interesting. That's a interesting point. <laughs> yeah, but uh, as someone who's not from any of those parts of the world, uh, it, you know, I can't speak too much on the uh, 
the, the subtleties of how it's sort of uh, viewed from that side of things. So it is something I've picked up from uh, interacting with folks with better backgrounds on that front. Oh, who would have thought that we would have gotten to three separate depressing things from this episode? <laughs> but yeah, there, you know, uh, you know, the jihad of the of the tongue is uh, and the pen is uh, is is something that's very you know you know can be you know a, a force for good in the world. Like, hey, uh, people aren't being like charitable enough. We should like change that. So I'm going to go out there and you know and, and say, hey. Something we're not we're kind of failing at. Let's like fix that. So that can be a good thing, you know? Yeah. It's not bad. But who's ready to stop being depressed? I am. So it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome to the game show portion of the show. I hope you're having a wonderful time here, and we're going to get to uh, rocking our various prizes here. Everyone's been uh, getting a lot of uh, points here, in fact, experience points. I'm not sure how they translate to prizes, but uh, we got some to hand out anyway. <laughs> our first uh, prize uh, uh, goes out um, is the you know, to a couple of folks here, uh, the TV Love Story Prize, which goes to Kirk and Laura. Though Laura clearly wants this TV love story to not be the kind that fits well with children's TV in the 70s. What do they win, Gepwin? They win a full expense-paid trip to Floston's Paradise with Ruby Rod. Green? Woo! (laughs) Excellent. I'd love to go on to such a a, a vacation myself, provided we don't get any uh, Mandalorks or whatever those guys with the face change thing going on here. That would just maybe uh, ruin the whole day. (laughs) Oh, our second prize is the Adventure Party Prize, which goes Kirk, Spock, and the rest of our group of experts who are literally on a quest to find the thing. Uh, some sort of magical MacGuffin here, so uh, they're basically an adventuring party. What do they win, Gepwin? Kirk gets at least two points of inspiration to roll advantage. I don't see any other way he's pulled any of this off. He's very good at arguing for advantage to the DM. <laughs> So, uh, Kirk, you're going to better use those uh, inspiration points quick because we only got six more episodes of the series left to go. <laughs> I really hope everyone who listens to this plays 5th edition because otherwise that's just... <laughs> so, uh, our third one is the Sufficiently Advanced Aliens Prize, which goes uh, to the Vidalins for their ability to apparently manipulate time and given the entire adventure takes place within apparently minutes on the Enterprise, that uh, kind of works out. Unless, of course, Sulu... Is you know should actually go and see McCoy because he just has a had a lengthy seizure or, or something like that. That's a little that's maybe the more depressing version of what's going on here. But we're gonna say that the Vidalans are actually just manipulating time. What do they win, Gepwin? The Vidalans win some big lazy something. I mean, they shouldn't win anything because they could solve this entire problem. What is wrong with them? Why do they need people? Why do they need anything for any anyone for anything if they can do these sorts of things? You forget, Gepwin, they're actually just giant kitties. That's so, true. They're giant cats, so they're incredibly lazy. Yes. So I guess they just get a laser pointer. <laughs> That's what they were doing the whole time. <laughs> or possibly a cardboard box to sleep in oh. while they make other people do their work. Are you sure they weren't just hanging out in the cardboard box the whole episode anyway? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Our final prize is the Rejecting Surak Prize, which goes to Jar for being part of a movement or something to reject the piece of philosophy as people have adopted, I guess, and by, you know, saying, I want to go kill everybody. What does he win, Gepwin? Apparently, Char's won forced religious re-education, because that's something that we think is fine. Apparently, uh... I'm guessing they're probably not Federation members. Uh, otherwise, there might be some, I don't know, basic Federation charter stuff to be worrying about. Um, and also, the Vidalans are doing it, so I guess there's no Prime Directive issue either. Hmm. Still awkward, though. Get, get us out of here, Capwood. Please. <laughs> yeah, we made it depressing again. <laughs> Which is not the point, so thank you all for joining us here on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! Uh, 
are you uh, struggling for the, the next episode? Oh yeah, we're struggling for the next episode. <laughs> we're we're almost we're almost done. This is actually the first episode of season two since it's only a like six episode season. Like we said before, there's no reason to not just forge ahead and through. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, apparently Spock gets sick. Yeah, Spock gets sick. The next episode is called "The Pirates of Orion," which Orion is it? It they don't pronounce it that way. <laughs> I thought well, it was Pirates of Orion too, and then I was like, "Oh, it's the Orions," you know, the yes. green people. Is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> somebody else because they don't pronounce it orion i was just looking at this like it's it's orion or i wait a moment are they hallowed <laughs> hallowed all <laughs> the orion <laughs> yeah, these guys do kind of look different uh, than the orion so maybe yeah. that's like just a coincidence that the name this the name spelled the same but like I no guess. we're not those jerk faces yeah, so no, it's not Pirates of Orion. It's Pirates of Orion. <laughs> it's just deeply confusing. We're, we're for reals completely different guys. It's, it's, it's no problem yeah, here. We're definitely, definitely different. Don't pay any attention over here. <laughs> so yeah, Spock is sick. They need to find a cure, apparently. And they cannot escape. Escape or something or other. There's pirates. There's something. This is Arr. a voice. There's a Orion captain voiced by James Doohan. You know, that's pretty usual. <laughs> As it goes, he's playing like uh, at least five people this this next episode. All right. <laughs> yeah, lots and lots of people. <laughs> so uh, I guess we'll uh, try to get some some drugs for Spock next week. Yes, Spock needs drugs. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, drugs are in high demand. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>